You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, everyone. In the last episode, we saw how Christian universalism reached a low point in the 6th century. But the last few hundred years has generated much scholarship on Christian universalism, and with the advent of the Internet, all of this information is now widely available to the general public. The happy result of all of this is that more and more people are becoming aware that being Christian does not require believing that some number of people will be lost in hell forever. And surprisingly, Some of the folks who are the most enthusiastic about all of this have backgrounds in the evangelical wing of Christianity. I have a theory about why this is happening. I think it's because evangelicalism became divided into two camps with regard to grace, the exclusive camp and the transactional camp, as I call them, or, by their more common names within Protestantism, the Calvinist camp and the Arminian camp. If you were an evangelical among the Calvinists, you were basically taught that salvation was by grace alone, but then you were also taught that salvation by grace alone was not for everyone, but only for certain elect ones. If you were an evangelical among the Arminians, you were taught that grace goes to all, but then you were also taught that salvation was not by grace alone, but only for those who could add to grace whatever it was that would be necessary in order to secure salvation. And so it turns out that one side of the evangelical brain was taught to believe that salvation was by grace alone, while the other side of the evangelical brain was taught to believe that grace goes to all, and both sides of the evangelical brain were taught to believe that all will not be saved because some, many, or even most people will be eternally separated from God in a hell where they would either finally meet with annihilation or they would exist in a state of eternal conscious torment. The problem with this is that it sets up an internal dissonance in the evangelical brain because, logically, one cannot simultaneously hold that salvation is by grace alone, that grace goes to all, and that all will not be saved. For evangelicals who wanted to affirm both that salvation is by grace alone and that grace goes to all, that meant, logically, that all would be saved, which then forces a rethinking of hell and the purposes of God's judgments. And now all of the information necessary to rethink hell is available on the Internet and in a number of excellent publications on these topics that are now easy to find and can be purchased for very reasonable prices. This has allowed for evangelicals to move away from hell as eternal torment and to begin thinking about other options which might be available to them. Ironically, it was one of the leaders of evangelicalism that set all of this rethinking of hell in motion, although he may not have intended to do so. And that leads to the story of Steve Gregg, the author of the 2013 book, All You Want to Know About Hell, which is one of those excellent resources now available, which gives an overview of all the rethinking going on about hell. Gregg became a Bible teacher in the evangelical movement, and for the first 15 years of his teaching on the Bible, he had the standard evangelical view of hell. But then in the mid-1980s, he started to hear that the eternal conscious torment doctrine was beginning to be challenged at some of the highest levels within evangelicalism. About this time, Greg writes, 
In the mid-1980s, I became aware that two evangelical leaders whom I had always admired, John R. W. Stott and Clark Pinnock, had embraced conditional immortality, also known as conditionalism and annihilationism, a view that I had formerly associated only with Jehovah's Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists. This is the view that, rather than experiencing eternal torment in hell, the lost will eventually pass from existence entirely and suffer no more. I was shocked to learn that these two champions of evangelicalism had rejected the traditional view of hell in favor of what I consider to be a fringe doctrine. And so here Steve Gregg gives us a good example about what happened when some people in the top levels of evangelicalism started rejecting the eternal torment doctrine in favor of the more humane annihilation doctrine, which then had the effect of opening up an even wider rethinking of hell in evangelicalism. And it wasn't long before Greg became aware that some evangelicals were even considering the possibility of universal salvation, or of universal reconciliation, as it's sometimes also called. Here's how Greg describes this journey. During the same period, I began hearing of yet another alternative to the tradition of eternal torment, often referred to as universal reconciliation. Some call it universalism, but it should not be referred to by this term without some modifier, such as Christian universalism or evangelical universalism. This is because it differs from other forms of universalism, such as may be found among non-evangelicals. Some forms of universalism suggest that all people will be saved, with or without faith in Christ, merely through their good intentions or through following faith systems other than Christianity. By contrast, evangelical forms of universalism, a.k.a. universal reconciliation or restorationism, hold to every essential doctrine of evangelical Christianity, affirming that Christ alone is the Savior of the world, and that none will ever be reconciled to God apart from faith in Jesus. The principal difference in the understanding of salvation between the evangelical universalist from that of other evangelicals is that evangelicals usually affirm that the death of an individual is the end of opportunities to repent and to believe in Christ. Advocates in universal reconciliation reject this assumption. They believe that God can and will accept the sincere repentance and faith of the individual, whether before or after death. Given enough time and inducements, all men who die as unbelievers will eventually repent at some interval after death. Most evangelicals rule out post-mortem conversion as a possibility, almost as an impulse, though Many scholars acknowledge that the scriptures are silent on the matter. I had known that Origen, the third century head of the Alexandrian catechetical school, had promoted some form of universal restorationist doctrine, but I also knew that he commonly followed an allegorical approach to scripture, which evangelicals today generally do not, and that he had ultimately been branded a heretic by the Catholic Church. These things made it easy enough to disregard any form of universalism as an evangelical option. I eventually learned that universal reconciliation was alive and well in the modern church and had been held among some Christian writers whose works I had appreciated without knowing that they held this view. The preacher and novelist George MacDonald, one of C.S. Lewis's most admired writers, was among them. Hannah Whitehall Smith, author of the classic the Christian's Secret of a Happy Life was another. 
Over a period of years, I heard rumors about other Christian writers whom I had respected also being Christian universalists, including William Law, William Barclay, Jacques Ellul, and others. Initially, I was disturbed to learn that writers who had positively impacted me in other ways had drifted into what seemed to me a heterodox position about hell, but I could not deny that they seemed otherwise to be true Christians from whose works I had derived great spiritual benefit. I responded to this knowledge simply by relegating their universalism to the margins of my thinking and was willing to give them a pass since they were, as I considered, true Christians exhibiting the Spirit of Christ though not exactly mainstream evangelical theologians. In researching for this book, I have found evangelical universalists to be a prolific sector of the modern church, so there may be more recent books espousing this view among evangelicals than there are championing traditionalism or conditionalism. In other words, what Steve Gregg found out was that there was an awful lot out there in favor of Christian universalism that he hadn't known about and that there were now folks with evangelical backgrounds that were becoming evangelical universalists, holding fast to the Bible and to the belief that God will save all in the end. And Greg also observed, to his surprise, that it was evangelicals who seemed to be putting out most of the recent books on Christian universalism. So, Steve Gregg's journey is interesting to me. He's an example of a thoughtful evangelical person who really wasn't allowed to think differently about hell and judgment. But once the rethinking got started in the evangelical world, he gradually became aware of evangelicals and other prominent Christians who were offering good arguments not only for annihilationism, but also for Christian universalism as well. And so, as far as the supposed condemnation of origin and universalism by the Catholic Church goes, Greg notes that he was not usually in the habit of following the rulings of medieval Roman Catholic councils anyway. And so he began to wonder why he would want to give so much credence to the proclamations of a Catholic council when he was a Protestant, and that very same medieval Catholic church had declared his entire Protestant heritage to be heretical as well. In footnote number nine from his book, Greg reflects on this point, adding that, for some reason, that Huss and Luther, two prominent Protestant reformers, had been branded as heretics by the Catholic church did not seem to have the same negative impact upon my opinions of them. And so, once Greg allowed himself to really look at all the arguments, he found that both annihilationism and Christian universalism had a lot more going for them than he had previously imagined. Greg does an incredible job in his book of trying to give a fair hearing to all sides, to eternal conscious torment, to annihilation, and to universal reconciliation, or Christian universalism. And then at the end of the book, Greg notes, My own sentiments, I am afraid, have not remained entirely hidden in the presentation. Though I remain genuinely undecided at the time of this writing as to which view best represents the complete synthesis of the biblical information, I know what I would prefer to be true, and probably the reader knows also. In the absence of certain knowledge, I think, it is some comfort in knowing that more than one possibility not only the worst one, is worthy of consideration. What I hear Greg saying here is that in general, it's just good to know that Bible-believing Christians now have other options than just the standard hell and its torments last forever position. He was relieved to find out that good biblical arguments can be made both for annihilationism and for universalism, 
and while he was not able to come to any certain conclusion on the matter personally, he does know that he would prefer that Christian universalism be true. Now let's move to another significant happening in the evangelical world which gave a boost of credibility to Christian universalism. Another example of evangelical openness to the possibility of a biblically-based Christian universalism can be seen in the way Zondervan, an evangelical publishing house, has reissued one of its books in their series which compares differing views on important issues within evangelicalism. This particular book was on the topic of hell, and it compared different views on hell within evangelicalism. In Zondervan's first edition of Four Views on Hell, released in 1996, it's important to note that back then there was no recognition that evangelical Christians could even consider the inclusive Christian universalist approach to hell. But things changed so much in the 20 years since the first edition of the book that a new edition was released in 2016, which included a Christian universalist perspective on hell. Preston Sprinkle, editor of the new edition, makes the following observation in the introduction. Christian universalism is gaining ground. While some proponents of universalism, the belief that everyone will eventually be rescued out of hell, base their view on sentimentality, others are digging it out of the biblical narrative. As you will see in the following pages, there are some powerful biblical arguments that Christians need to wrestle with. No longer can evangelicals scoff at this view as the byproduct of too many hours of Oprah. In this up-to-date second edition of Four Views on Hell, it's Robin Perry who contributes a chapter on Christian universalism and hell. And then at the end of the book, Preston Sprinkle, from his vantage point as the book's editor, makes the following very significant comment in the book's conclusion. Sprinkle writes in the conclusion, I found Robin Perry's essay to be a fascinating read, and if I can be quite honest, I think it is a game changer. I do not say this because I agree with his ultimate conclusion. I don't but because he has brought what is often assumed to be a heretical view into the arena of biblical exegesis and theology. Christians can no longer dismiss his view as unorthodox. We must now actually crack open our Bibles and, like the noble Bereans, Acts 17:11, and see if these things are so. Evangelicals must think deeply and critically, indeed biblically, about Perry's argument. And, if I can be completely honest, I hope Perry is right. So what I want us to notice about all of this is that Sprinkle, the book's editor, and remember this is Zondervan, a well-known evangelical publishing house, even though he disagrees with Perry, categorizes Perry's theology as an orthodox option for Christian belief. I could never have imagined this kind of evangelical openness back in 1996 when I consulted the first edition of Four Views on Hell as part of my Doctor of Ministry thesis, which touched on the various understandings of hell. Back then, I could not have guessed that 20 years later, a second edition of Zondervan's Four Views on Hell would be released in which a Christian universalist approach was deemed an orthodox option for Christians to investigate. For evangelicals who've been ostracized for believing God will save all, this can be life-changing. And George Saris is a good example of one of those kinds of persons. From these podcasts, you already know George's voice, because he does the intro and outro for the podcast. And if you think he sounds like he has a professional voice, you'd be right. George is an actor and a vocal artist who has narrated a number of books, including, I'm happy to say, 
providing the narration for the audio version of my book, Grace Saves All, which is available at audible.com. George is also a conservative by nature who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. George became involved in evangelical Christianity as a young adult, and after he finished his undergraduate degree, he pursued a seminary education at an evangelical seminary. It was during his seminary training that he began to investigate the idea that hell might not be God's last word for people. Cyrus wrote a seminary paper on the topic. The professor gave him a good grade for the research he'd done, but then discouraged him about sharing his conclusions because the church had already concluded that universal salvation had been rejected by the church. However, over the years, Cyrus could not drop the idea. In 2017, he published his conclusions in his really good book, Heaven's Doors, Wider Than You Ever Believed. And a year before that, in 2016, in Cyrus's weblog, Engaging the Culture, he posted the following words. They are in a post entitled, Game Changer on Hell, which reads in part, Until now, most Christians have assumed that evangelicals, people who base their convictions clearly on the teaching of Scripture, cannot possibly be universalists people who believe that God will one day redeem all mankind. With the release on March 8 of Zondervan's Four Views on Hell, second edition, that understanding suddenly changed. For the first time, a well-respected evangelical publishing house has clearly acknowledged that universalism is a view Christians should seriously consider. Four Views on Hell, second edition, is a great introduction to the biblical arguments that directly relate to these issues. The arguments presented are not exhaustive but they're clear and clearly presented. After reading Perry's essay, you still may not be convinced that he is right, but it's no longer enough to simply state categorically that an evangelical can't be a universalist. The landscape has changed. Maybe it's time to take another look at an issue you may have been wondering about for a very long time. What's interesting to me about all of this is how George Sarris understands himself to be a person who bases his convictions clearly on the teaching of Scripture. For someone like Cyrus, coming to believe God will ultimately save all is not a denial of Scripture, but an affirmation of Scripture. Evangelicals come out of the Protestant Reformation, which had sola scriptura, Scripture alone, as one of its mottos. Cyrus did not give up sola scriptura in reaching his conclusions, just the opposite. It was his attention to Scripture alone in its original languages and contexts combined with his refusal to be intimidated by the pronouncements of debatable medieval church councils, which led him to his conclusions. Now Saris and others like him can feel vindicated in that Zondervan, a major evangelical publishing house, has published a book which declares his point of view to be an orthodox option worthy of consideration. Other evangelicals are also recognizing a shift in thinking among their circles regarding Christian universalism. Roger Olson, a theologian on the faculty of the Baptist Seminary at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, is a good example of this. Olson, a professor of theology in an evangelical seminary, does not personally subscribe to an inclusive Christian universalist approach, but he is in a position to notice that there is much new thinking taking place within evangelicalism about the possibility of it. Olson wrote in January 2015 that he can now envision a new stage among evangelicals where one can see a possible horizon in which universalism will be accepted as normal but not normative for evangelicals. In other words, an evangelical theologian who, quote, comes out of the closet, unquote, 
as embracing absolute universalism will not automatically be excommunicated from the evangelical movement by its popes. Olson also stated in the same blog post, One thing is becoming undeniably clear to anyone who reads a broad spectrum of contemporary evangelical theology. Universalism is in the air. I mean, it is being much discussed by evangelicals and not always only in negative ways. Many evangelicals are considering various options in universalism in a way that evangelicals in the past would not have done. Although Olson himself is not persuaded that God's grace will save all, he recognizes that some evangelicals are beginning to have serious conversations about the possibility of it. But we shouldn't get too excited about the prospects of evangelicalism giving universalism a full embrace and full credibility. Even though there are some signs of evangelical openness to Christian universalism, there is still considerable opposition to it as well. A culmination of this opposition is found in Michael McClyman's massive two-volume takedown of Christian universalism, provocatively titled, The Devil's Redemption. The title of McClyman's book is a reference to how some Christian universalists have come to believe not only in the ultimate restoration of all fallen humanity, but also of all created beings, including fallen angels and even the devil himself. But not all Christian universalists go so far as to assert that if God is going to save all of humanity, then God also has to save the demons and the devil as well. In my own book on Christian universalism, I treat the discussion of the final reconciliation of the devil and his demons as a separate matter. Perhaps the devil and his demons were capable of a type of rebellion that humans aren't capable of. Who knows? But tying the salvation of the devil to Christian universalism as if they are inseparable is an old ploy used against Christian universalism, which goes all the way back to the time of the Emperor Justinian. What I believe is driving McClyman and other anti-universalists like him is the concern that if you take away eternal hell, that Christianity will somehow become unglued. It's almost, for folks like McClyman, that an eternal hell with some number of people occupying it is kind of a linchpin for Christianity, and if it gets removed, then all of Christianity will fall apart. And so McClyman, an evangelical scholar of Christian history, is just expressing how most evangelicals are concerned that Christian universalism, if allowed to go mainstream, will ultimately result in a weakening and even a possible disintegration of key Christian beliefs. Along these lines, McClyman writes in his book that the issue of final salvation for all, or final salvation for some, does not stand alone but is intertwined with virtually everything that Christianity has to say about God's love and justice, human nature, sin, freedom, Jesus' life, Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit, the nature of the church, and Jesus' return. For the same reason, a Christian affirmation of final, universal inclusion will affect everything else that one might say about God, humanity, Christ, sin, grace, salvation, and the church. How much theologically speaking is at stake in the debate on universalism? The answer is everything. And so McClyman gives a good representation of evangelicals who believe that Christian universalism introduces a threat to the core of the Christian faith, and therefore it should be strongly refuted. So, while some within evangelicalism may be warming to the possibility of an orthodox Christian universalism, others are taking a definite stand against it. The way I see it, 
What's at issue here is the question over what is actually central to the Christian faith and what is peripheral. For evangelicals, the gospel message for hundreds of years has traditionally revolved around deliverance from some form of eternal hell. Therefore, anything that threatens the reality of an eternal hell threatens something that has been central to their gospel message for a long time. However, deliverance from an eternal hell is not the only way the gospel can be announced. It is quite possible to powerfully announce Jesus' good news about the kingdom of God and to speak urgently about the dangers of God's judgments on sin, all without necessitating a belief in the eternality of hell. And although many churches require belief in a hell of no return for some number of people, I think it's a great shame that spiritual seekers after Christ feel like they will be denied all church membership simply because they can't go along with the idea that being Christian means having to believe that some number of people are going to be separated from God forever in a hell of annihilation or of eternal torment. And this leads me to a practical reason for modern Christianity to return to its earliest roots and to be more tolerant of Christian universalism. If Christian universalism was just more widely recognized as a legitimate Christian option, then many more people would be able to experience the benefit of having a Jesus-centered spirituality. If they knew that the inclusive Christian universalist approach was an option, they might just take it. Actually, I know that they will take it because I've seen people do it personally. But not knowing that Christian universalism is an option, they opt out of anything Christian because they assume that being Christian requires believing in some form of never-ending hell. Not surprisingly, they see Christianity as a harsh religion because they associate Christianity with having to believe in a God who either abandons his failed children to annihilation or who torments them forever, which seems to them to be cruel beyond all calculation. And that's the point of this podcast, to help get the word out that it's quite possible to be Christian, to believe the Bible, and to believe that God will ultimately save all. It's my conviction that so many more people would be able to experience the power of Jesus in their lives if they just knew that it was okay for them to believe that God was in the business of saving everyone and to be Christian too. And so, on a very practical level, letting people know about the inclusive Christian universalist approach can open the doors of Christian faith and Christian community to so many more people. In doing so, we would not be doing something new, but returning to how it was in the early centuries of the Christian faith when this view was known and accepted. But there is even a more urgent concern for us to contend with when it comes to Christian universalism, and it has to do with the goodness of God. And it's to that concern we will turn in the next episode. Until next time then, I encourage you to continue to believe with me in a grace that saves Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.